Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and it has been an extremely busy week. But not sure what more attention was paid to, whether it was to footballers going to Africa, going to China, or whether or not it was the riots uh, in southern China in Guangzhou. We're going to talk about well, we're going to talk about the footballers at another show. Uh, Didier Drogba, of course, and Yakubuni Ayenigini. Uh, oh, Kobus, I'm going to need your help on that last name there. I Ayeg, think it's Ayeg Beni. Ayeg Beni. Okay. Well, two I big. Football so. contracts being signed this week. Uh, again, we'll we'll push that to another show. But it is a trend to watch in terms of seeing how China is internationalizing its football action. So let's start uh, with this week. We're going to talk about uh, three subjects, and I'm going to introduce our panel very quickly. But we're going to talk about really uh, on top of the show the riots and the disturbances. Riot may be a strong word for it, but the protests, the unusual protests that happened in Guangzhou. Then we'll talk about Chinese and African business culture and China-Ethiopian ties. And here to help me sort all of this out, as usual, is Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies in Stellenbosch University in Cape Town. Uh, good afternoon. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I'm feeling like I'm sitting in the middle of a rain cloud because it's raining very hard. Oh, well, it's raining very hard here in Paris, too. Uh, you know, Anne Sherman, the weather in Washington today is? It's not 100 degrees, which oh, okay. it has been it's the past been, two days. You're so. getting a little African heat in, uh, in Washington these past few weeks. Yes. And so and that's Ann Sherman in Washington and, of course, is also the kind of voice behind our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Hope you can go check that out. And we're thrilled to have on the show today, again, a repeat performance, uh, you know, South Africa-based China analyst Lu Jinghao, who, uh, who does a little bit of blogging, a little bit of analysis, and, and you know, and uh, has been appearing more and more in the media. So we're really thrilled to have him back and to kind of share some of his opinions on some of these key issues. So, gentlemen and lady, let's get started right off the top with Guangzhou. So let me just kind of refresh and recap what's happened this week before I get your reactions. Uh, basically, a Nigerian man, from what we can tell from the reporting, uh, and it's, again, not confirmed that he's Nigerian, if I, if I understand correctly. Uh, at first, it was that he was a foreigner, a Laowai, and then that's, you know, in, in Guangzhou, um, that oftentimes implies he's African. Uh, it then turned out that he was uh, African and Nigerian, uh, potentially Nigerian, but I don't think authorities have confirmed that. Um, I think the Nigerian embassy sent officials to go and check it out. Th to check uh, it so, out, so correct. Yes. Uh, he got apparently got into a dispute with a taxi driver, um, and then from there was taken into police custody where he mysteriously died. Um, now, if this was the first time this happened, it probably wouldn't make a lot of news, but this has actually been happening over the past few years as the Chinese population, particularly Nigerian population in Guangzhou, um, has been rising. They call it uh, Chocolate City. Chocolicheng is one of, the, one of the more derisive ways that the Chinese refer to, uh, to the growing immigrant population. Um, and so now we have what has become something of an international incident with the Nigerians sending a delegation to investigate down there. The Chinese authorities are investigating investigating. Uh, Kobus, where does this put us right now in terms of, uh, you know, of this emergence of this immigrant community that's, uh, that's really burgeoning in southern China and what the perception was in Africa to, this, uh, to these events that happened uh, in, in Guangzhou this past week? Well, you know, it's. Um, I think it, it highlights a bunch of things. In the first place, it highlights the fact um, that we talked about before that 
a lot of the trade of um, Chinese goods to Africa is not happening via um, Chinese business people. It's happening via African business people who frequently, ha you know, kind of are resident in, in cities like Guangzhou. Um, you know, so, you know, th there's a direct link between this guy being Guangzhou and like the kind of troubles he's facing there and the kind of cheap Chinese stuff that, that Africans are buying on the streets. Um, I think that's the one thing. And the second thing, I think it might also open the eyes of Africans to the kind of level of anti-African racism in China that I think, you know, hasn't been discussed a lot in Africa, you know, so far. Um, and, you know, kind of this, the, the kind of bigger context of the situation is a kind of growing, you know, unease within China about all these immigrants. And like, you know, kind of it also reveals the that, you know, kind of Chinese don't seem to uh, like them very much. Jinghao, let's now get some of your perspectives on this. You actually wrote an interesting blog post this week uh, it titled it, uh, Caution, Racial Discrimination Against Blacks is Rising in China. You talked about the protest in the, uh, in, in the Yue, Yueshou district in, in Guangzhou. This issue of the intolerance that Chinese have towards not only uh, mm -hmm. black immigrants, but also immigrants as a whole, you know, in part because China just is not an, a country that has, as Evan Osnos of The New, York, the New Yorker says, a, a philosophical you know, capability of, of being able to assimilate immigrants. It's not something that has ever been a tradition in Chinese culture. So assimilation of foreigners is not something that, uh, that people are very familiar with. Talk to us a little bit about the perceptions of Africans in China and kind of some of these ideas that you were writing about in your blog post. Okay, thank you. Uh, so first of all, uh, two, one year ago, I was in Guangzhou. Uh, I was accompanying two American filmmakers uh, uh, trying to do a, f a documentary portraying some figures in China-Africa relationships. So we actually tied down some Nigerians who are doing business in, in, uh, in China. So I got in, uh, looking a little into this this, uh, this subject, and I found it quite interesting. First, firstly, as you said, uh, most of Chinese people were not exposed in, uh, you know, a environment with a lot of foreigners. The media didn't talk much about foreigners. And second, most of foreigners, Chinese people are familiar, were familiar with in the past, were uh, Westerners doing China business in China. But the, the Africans coming to China is really new. Not talking about, not even mentioning Chinese, most Chinese people never seen any Africans. They, their perceptions over Africans usually came from media. But we often know that media portrayed Africa and African people in, in a quite negative way uh, in the past decades, you know, uh, in, including uh, disease and poverty and, and the warfare and corruption. So, you know, when uh, these images already uh, kind of rooted in every Chinese people's mind, reading uh, news or watching CCTV, um, then they see Africans all, uh, coming, to, uh, coming to China. Some of uh, the, these Africans did some illegal activities portrayed in the media. They immediately reinforced their mind of, you know, Africans are uh, maybe lower class or lower educated and now they made a lot of trouble in the, in the continent they came to China what are they going to do so you know every Chinese any normal Chinese like like me uh, or you know, not not me but any normal Chinese would react this as you know we, we got to be very cautious and try to protect our our home and you know China has enough social problems now you're adding foreigners it's very easy to 
you know, call up the the xenophobic mind of Chinese people. You know, if Africans are doing bad things, they gotta go. So I think this mentality is rooted in many Chinese policemen's mind too. You know, most of them interaction with Africans mainly are through uh, with these traders. So uh, I'm gonna talk a little more through this topic. I'll, I'll return the topic back to you, Eric. Yeah, and feel free to kind of pump in and jump in any time. The idea here that I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit here was. Um, you know, there's a broader context for the for the xenophobic reaction that we're seeing in China, and it's not just directed towards uh, Africans. There's the, a campaign underway right now called Samfei, which are the kind of three illegals to live, work, and travel. Uh, and a lot of that was sparked in from a number of recent incidents in Beijing, uh, which were captured on social media. Uh, and can, you know, one was a, a a drunk British man who allegedly tried to to rape a Chinese woman in the street. Another was a Russian cellist for for the Beijing Symphony, if I recall correctly, who you know behaved you know absolutely disrespectful to to an elderly woman on the train. And there's been a number of these very high profile uh, foreigner incidents that have prompted a wave of xenophobia. And I, and I want to, Jinghao, just get back to you very quickly, because on China Smack, which is a site designed to translate the Chinese web, and I really, really recommend if you want to get a site, get a sense of what people are talking about on the Chinese web. And if you look at the comments that are uh, about the incident in the, uh, you know, with the with the Nigerian gentleman, you can see this, this really bitter, harsh xenophobia that comes out um, that, uh, you know, here, uh, completely kick out these effing black devils. Um, there's another comment. Foreigners don't have special privileges. Um, you know, let's see. They, they just go on, and, and it's pretty harsh. And that's, you know, Jinghao, you would say that's pretty standard fare on the Chinese web where the xenophobia is much closer to the surface. Yeah, when when wherever website you go, online forums, when talking about uh, Africans in Guangzhou, if any Chinese with conscience, consciousness, uh, a conscience to bring about the idea of racial tolerance, he will actually be attacked. This is uh, very horrific to see. You know, people will say, "Oh, you know, are you a traitor? Traitor?" Because you know there are so many social problems, and now you know you're you're just uh, trying to bring some Western idea on racial tolerance. We shouldn't do that, which which is very horrible to say. And uh, I, I just think um, most people haven't really looked at this issue seriously. Uh, the news source coming from various sources, maybe some newses were edited by xenophobic Chinese trying to uh, kind of reinforce the idea of uh, uh, these people are bad. Uh, you know, wh once there is a bad news about Nigerians or Africans in China in general, there will be xenophobic comments coming out like that. And I would like to comment that uh, although most of the Nigerians I met in my uh, in, in in my research in Guangzhou are, are very, very nice people. There are some uh, incidents associated with illegal Nigerians or drug dealers or, or uh, trying to seduct, seduce Chinese women. So so that, that news, I'm not saying Chinese people in Africa doing an absolutely great job. This news actually reinforced the negativity between Chinese people and African people, which I think really need to be seriously looked at. Yeah, and one of the other... Jinghao, I wonder, I was, sorry to interrupt you, Eric, I wonder if you could, you know, kind of, I think you, you have such a kind of a special kind of perspective. How do you see the kind of Chinese anti-Nigerian, um, you know, kind of xenophobia differ from South African anti-Nigerian xenophobia, which is running on very similar lines? There's also perceptions that Nigerians are involved in scams, are involved in drug dealing, and you know, kind of there's you know, kind of frequently in South African Nigerians are like kind of shorthand for kind of criminal elements. You know, kind of even though that even though the fact that many individual Nigerians are wonderful people and, and work incredibly hard and, and bring a lot of money to the country. 
Right. I think, Kobus, this is an excellent question. I think some research really need to be directed into that uh, thing, like how uh, Nigerians were perceived in different countries. But I would like to say, uh, I, I, nev I, I never encountered a Nigerian immigrant in South Africa. I did hear a lot of xenophobic comments. I will say China is relatively new in dealing with Nigerian uh, immigrants, and their reactions are more kind of, I will say, dangerous. If anything uh, were allowed to happen, there will be some serious issue, uh, especially, uh, I mean, at least the South African government are willing to protect uh, racial tolerance. You know, the country is, is uh, uh, you know, revered as a rainbow nation. But China, uh, most people will support if China become a homogenous government, a, a homogenous society. You know, in the whole history of a couple thousand years, it's always the, the foreign countries uh, coming to China be assimilated into Chinese. They will never be allowed to keep their uh, identity, you know, by, by the Chinese culture. So I think uh, we, we really need to be careful. Uh, we need to be cautious to look at what the, uh, you know, Chinese increasingly, uh, you know, view Nigeria as and watch carefully, closely about this issue. Yeah. To, well, what, oh, go ahead, Anne. Go ahead. Oh, Jing, Jing, I was going to say, you know, you yes. note in your blog post that um, the government is increasing the people-to-people -people exchange and there's more and more agreements and friendship, uh, you know, uh, efforts at the highest level. But at the same time, you say that discrimination is actually rising. It's getting worse. And in my head, you know, okay, if there's more interaction and uh, closer ties, it seems like uh, discrimination maybe should, um, you know, be lessening. And so I, I don't know if you, I don't know why you think that's happening. Well, I think, uh, I, I think the most interesting thing is that uh, the government uh, rhetoric over creating a mutual beneficial environment actually facilitates the people-to-people -people action. But people-to-people -people action are uh, is is uh, largely unexpected uh, or unstudied by the government associated research institutes. So I encounter with a lot of Chinese researchers. They they know what the th in theory should be fact, but uh, if you're talking about reality, how they Chinese should uh, treat Africans, I don't think there's any research about you know how uh, there's a cultural difference in, in these people-to-people -people interaction and how to to lower that uh, you know uh, get the, how to kind of narrow narrowing the gap uh, so through the trade and investment opportunities gets gets uh, increased more and more Africans were exposed in the Chinese market and vice versa and then most of people uh, the daily day-to-day -day kind of people any normal people they they're not actually received any message from the government saying watch out uh, there are going to be more Africans and here's how we can deal with them uh, I don't see that in Chinese any uh, normal education program I'm not talking about the people to people exchange which is in a very very small pool of people who were affected no, most people you. in Chinese school they, they don't they, they had they have no idea what's what's happening and then suddenly you see third 300,000 Nigerian uh, traders coming to China and their daily business is uh, seriously uh, you know kind of interacting uh, taking this uh, living space of Chinese and and I have friends in Guangzhou they simply don't go to that region called Ruishou district where Africans live they just think that region's already taken care taken over by the Africans and they're scared 
there's no message whatsoever from the governments how we should treat these Africans. Well, there's an interesting point to look at in the in the broader context of Chinese history and this this idea I think you brought you touched on of you know racial superiority and this idea of the the Han race you know you know being the center and basically everybody else being barbarians until they accept the dominance of of Han culture. That was you know that dates back thousands and thousands of years. And one of the concerns I think looking at this incident is. How can the government, you know, in Beijing separate out um, what you're talking about, which is this, you know, across the society, these ideas of, of racial difference? And, you know, and Anne, I think your point is, is interesting on the one hand that, you know, while interactions are happening at the political level, uh, on the social and societal level, it doesn't seem to be happening. And this, this is very interesting to look at from the African point you're looking in. And this is what I wanted to ask Kobus here. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that uh, I think it was in May that Nigeria uh, did an immigration roundup of Chinese. And one of the big complaints across the continent is the presence of Chinese illegal immigrants. And so on Twitter this week, um, I got into a pretty interesting exchange with a, a Chinese Twitter user because I said this is becoming an international incident. And he basically said, uh, why? Who cares? Um, and I don't think the average Chinese uh, person, as, as Jing Hao said, is aware that there are so many hundreds of thousands of Chinese who are living in the same situation as these Nigerians are in Guangzhou, in Yueshou. Um, and it's just ironic that they don't perceive the fact that their people overseas are just as vulnerable as these Nigerians. And in some ways, every time that there's an immigrant crackdown on Chinese in Africa or in South America or elsewhere, the Chinese web becomes immediately defensive. And so it's going to be interesting to see if that will change government policy to force assimilation domestically in China because of the exposure that the Chinese government now faces internationally. What do you think on that? Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting. Like one, one of the comments on China Smack um, kind of kind of vaguely kind of made that point, you know, kind of saying that, um, you know, they, they, they were comparing uh, Nigerians in China with, with what the situation would have been if, if the person were African-American rather than African-African. Um, you know, kind of, and they, you know, kind of, they, they, they kind of, you know, it's, 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 it's a comment kind of format, so they didn't kind of make, make a full argument, but the, the implication was that it's similar for Chinese overseas in the sense that, you know, they were saying that, you know, kind of an American citizen has, you know, if you have an American passport, that that entitles you to protection, no matter where you are. Well, if you're Chinese, then sorry, you know, kind of thing. If you're overseas, then the Chinese government won't help you. But it's interesting for me that that doesn't necessarily translate into seeing that from the African's perspective in China. Uh, Jing Hao, your thoughts on this, in terms of the presence of Chinese in Africa, and that governments may actually step up their enforcement if they see that Africans are being disrespected in China? Uh, I, I, I still don't know if there's a relationship between perceiving uh, your citizens having problem in another country uh, and towards, you know, trying to protect their citizens uh, or, or protecting your citizens in their country or their citizens in your country. Uh, I haven't seen much uh, being talked about in, in the media, and, and I, I would agree that uh, as a Chinese citizen, uh, it's quite vulnerable in, in Africa because uh, if you're not a government 
sense that for a government-owned organization, uh, there's very minimal support you get, just simply because there's so many Chinese and they're very limited resource uh, Chinese uh, embassies in Africa. And uh, we shouldn't forget that uh, people who are sent from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from China to Africa are generally young, generally exposed, uh, purposively being exposed in, in a harsh situation, but they all want to be promoted to some, uh, I would say, a Western, more developed nations. So they couldn't, they, they tried to uh, not to make so much trouble in in their in their presses in, in Africa. So I think, uh, you know, if you do expect the government uh, doing more in in the people to people actual people to people reaction uh, interaction every day, the government really needs to look at these issues seriously. But uh, I don't see this uh, initiative being being raised. Also, I want to add another point. Uh, you just talk about uh, you know Nigerians and Chinese kind of uh, both being treated in in one another one another country. Uh, even if the government didn't raise uh, the idea. I've already heard uh, when I was in uh, uh, West Africa, I was I actually heard people criticized me saying uh, our people were treating so badly at your country. There you go. The, uh, you know, can can't uh, can't can't you you know allow us to treat you the same way mm -hmm. or, or something like that? So you see, like people actually react towards this kind of thing, no matter what government says. You know, right. there are interaction, and I think this is a very interesting thing to look into. And, and that's going to be one of the things to watch for is the media coverage of this, and particularly now in in this era of blogs and tweets and you know podcasts and the like that. You know, the Chinese will have yet another PR problem on their hands in Africa. That's been one of the themes of our podcast, of course, is the ongoing, the growing list of PR problems. And again, if the perception is that African immigrants, and we should we should make a very important point here that uh, while Nigerians are the largest population in Guangzhou, in Yueshio, uh, they are by no means the only. And so there are immigrants from all over Africa who are now going to China. Um, but I just wanted to kind of make that point. Uh, just before we move on, I also wanted to bring your attention to really the best reporting that I've seen on this subject is by uh, the New Yorker correspondent in, in China. His name is Evan Osnos. He's done, he did an article in 2009 called The Promised Land, Guangzhou's uh, Canaan Market uh, and the rise of the African merchant class. So that's something to, to check out. So, Kobus, uh, final thoughts on this subject before we move on? <clears throat> well, I kind of actually want to use my final thought to actually, um, you know, ask a question of, um, to, to um, Jing Hao. Um, you mentioned, you know, kind of the, the issues of... of um, Chinese social problems and the, the kind of the, the effect that they're having and I saw that kind of coming up a lot in the in the the comments on the blog as well you know kind of things like um, let me see if I can quote that there's one guy on China smack was writing um, in our mainland one has to learn to consume drainage oil learn how to eat fake chicken eggs learn how to drink poisonous milk powder and eat all poisonous and fake food products um, and uh, you know kind of that foreigners that, that come to China will have to learn to, to kind of to to go through the same kind of hardships um, what do you make of this kind of conflation of, of problems that Chinese are facing and xenophobia and kind of you know the, 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 the presence of foreigners it seems like a very kind of interesting kind of mass of different issues uh, well, I, I think this is just uh, uh, some Chinese people trying to associate uh, uh, foreigners' Im immigration with uh, the current social issues Chinese are facing. And uh, I think uh, this that comment is also a little... Uh, 
Uh, I mean, largely, it's it's ironic, you know, trying to uh, sarcastic, being sarcastic, saying that you know Africans shouldn't be treated like the same, uh, sh- uh, differently. They should be treated like Chinese. And here we go, Chinese are living in a hard situation, so Africans yeah, need to adapt yeah. to it. And I think that that's a little bit uh, has its legitimacy. Uh, I do think uh, today Chinese people are living in a quite uh, 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 environment with with quite a bit of pressure, and you know, just talking about urban pressure in Guangzhou, you know, there are just so many uh, urban uh, immigrants uh, from rural immigrants going to urban look for a job and it's already caused a lot of tension. Who also face uh, an enormous amount of discrimination as well, not just, it's not just foreigners. Exactly, you know the the healthcare the issue and also the food shortage or whatever it is the transportation pressure. So now you see uh, uh, African uh, in the hundreds of thousands of Africans uh, taking taking over a region. Uh, you know where Chinese don't even want to pass by. They think you know this is like you're taking our precious land away and it just uh, well well very very likely to uh, increase the xenophobia uh, among the Chinese. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the xenophobia, you know, and again, certainly China is by no means unique in this. We're seeing, you know, the rise of Marine Le Pen here in France, who ran on a very, very xenophobic uh, platform for the presidency. In the United States, we've seen, you know, in among the Tea Party and uh, among Republicans, uh, a very harsh language on immigration there. So this is a, you know, as... And even well, uh, in Israel this week. And even in saw. Israel, certainly in Israel, particularly against yeah. Africans in Israel as well. So this is really, I think it's interesting to see how China and the interaction with Africans uh, and Nigerians is really part of a global trend. Um, and there, I saw another report that another, just today or yesterday, that another Nigerian man had been taken into custody. And so one key question is going to be is to find out exactly how many Africans and Nigerians are currently being held. Um, and then will more protests kind of ensue in the days and weeks to come? So this will be something that we keep an eye on. Let's move on to our second topic, and I'm going to reorder the rundown that I kind of gave at the beginning of the, of the show. We're going to go to uh, uh, an interesting sidebar conference at the on the side of the, the, the G20 summit, I think it was, or was it the UN? Yeah, so the G20 yeah, summit. Yeah, it was the G20. Yeah, summit. so the G20 summit uh, in Mexico uh, between Melish Sunawi, who is the Prime Minister of Ethiopia and Chinese President Hu Jintao. Um, what was very interesting about this was this, you know, th- this very public display of their friendship, uh, you know, and, and, and Kobus, what was your reaction and why do you think this particular meeting was important? And, you know, you think about Hu Jintao's schedule when he gets to a G20 summit. Why did he pick the Ethiopian prime minister to talk to and make a photo appearance with versus all the other, pre- you know, presidential and, and leadership delegations that were there? What's special about Ethiopia here? Well, you know, kind of, it seems that it's it's it might be part of um, an align a south south alignment in the first place, um, and then obviously, also, um, you know, it's it probably is a strengthening of of the Chinese's focus on East Africa, um, and also maybe you know, kind of uh, related to that, their um, their f- focus on a shift, a Chinese shift from or slow shift from resources extraction, or you know, kind of focusing only on resource extraction in Africa too, also focusing on manufacturing. Um, Ethiopia is an interesting case in Africa because um, it, it has very few kind of natural resources. Um, and two-thirds of all the Chinese businesses who are invested in Ethiopia are manufacturing businesses. Um, you know, so, so they actually make things in Ethiopia. And some people have been talking about Ethiopia as a possible uh, you know, kind of next step for Chinese companies, you know, kind of as, as labor in China becomes more and more expensive, as people get 
paid more and more kind of uh, you know kind of high level salaries um, that you know some of the manufacturing will start moving to places like Ethiopia. And just to that point, uh, just to give you a visualization of that, CNN several months ago uh, ran a an interesting profile of the Huajian shoe factory. Huajian is investing billions of dollars. They're one of the largest shoe contractors in the world, and they're now producing shoes in Ethiopia for the U.S. market. And they did a little behind the scenes segment that we posted up on the that I just posted up on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. A couple of facts on uh, Sino-Ethiopian ties to kind of set the context for our discussion. Uh, Ethiopia is, uh, it, you know, has had you know, Chinese growth rates for the past few years at 8.4%. Uh, it's also uh, China's the largest trading partner and now the largest investor. Um, so that seems to be very interesting. But Anne, Ethiopia sits at a crossroads between the U.S. and China, and it's one of the places that might... Uh, you know, the two rising powers bump into each other. The United States looks at Ethiopia strategically very important. It, of course, has a drone base there that it uses to keep an eye on Somalia and also then into the uh, off the, the, you know, its anti-piracy operations as well. Um, and it seems that, you know, to the Americans, Ethiopia presents an opportunity very, very different, though, from the Chinese. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think this meeting between, you know, the Chinese and Ethiopian that at uh, the G20 was really important because it just shows how um, important China has become as a diplomatic ally for these African governments. Um, you know, and the Chinese president was saying, you know, we need to give uh, more focus on the, the, you know, bridging the gap between developing and, you know, developed world. And I think it was just, um, you know, very like symbolic for him to have this meeting and kind of place all this focus and emphasis on, you know, looking at Africa. Well, this is interesting you talk about that because one of my kind of, you know, anti-American pet peeves, and here we go again, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but which is that what, what I find that the Americans don't understand is that there is a war for of ideas that's going on out there. So, and, and let me just paint it in broad, broad brushstrokes, and then we can kind of respond to it. Um, there is the Washington consensus, which is liberal markets, you know, free trade, democracy, you know, civil society developments. Uh, there is radical fundamentalism, whether it be it, you know, Orthodox Jews in Israel or be it, you know, Al-Qaeda um, or, and, and, and rad, radical fundamentalism. And then the third one is the Beijing consensus. And Ethiopia, to me, seems like a place, just like Paul Kagame's Rwanda, where the Beijing consensus is getting a lot of traction. And this is an idea that is very, very appealing to emphasize economic development, social rights, but not political rights, and very little political reform, but really this drive to to build the economy out. Um, When you were at the congressional hearings, for example, a couple, I think it was about two months ago, and the level of questioning that I saw was so low and base that, they, that there's not this awareness of that there is a war of ideas going on out there. And I think Melis Nawi says he's making it clear where he wants to put his, uh, you know, place his bets. Right. And I mean, I think that despite, um, you know, evidence that uh, maybe China doesn't have necessarily um, a a negative impact on good governance and on democratic values. I think that there is just um, the you know prevailing prevailing idea that the reason why we haven't that you know that Ethiopia hasn't made uh, equally strong uh, growth, I guess, and or reform and political and good governance, all these things, is because of you know China's influence there. And 
So, I mean, I think that... Yeah, that's a, yeah. you know, we've heard that argument. I, I forget where we were talking about this a while ago, you know, this, this, this causality, this linkage between China's investment in Ethiopia and limited reforms. Zanawi was an asshole long before the Chinese ever showed up. Uh, I mean, that's that's well documented. He, you know, he is he has been running an authoritarian government for a long time. He's been extraordinarily harsh on on on, on opposition parties and whatnot. And so to kind of put all of that at the feet of the Chinese to me seems, you know, just intellectually disingenuous. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of sorry to interrupt you, but, you know, kind of USAID recently actually, you know, kind of they admitted that that the kind of democratic gains that have been made after Zanawi came to power have largely been lost. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they also said that USAID is still going to be supporting Ethiopia, uh, you know, the Ethiopian government, you know, into the future. You know, I when I was a journalist at Radio France International, I did an interview with the uh, the the opposition leader in Ethiopia, who who I was interviewing him on the phone on a cell phone, and he he said he was literally on the move for his life. He couldn't stay in one place because uh, you know the, the you know the government forces would, would would you know were, were basically I had a bounty on him, um, and this has been consistent from opposition folks. So I think in some ways that you know there is a meeting of the minds there. But let's kind of shift to the economic side here. And Jinghao, this idea that that China is is looking to places like Ethiopia as a, as a, as an opportunity to outsource its low end manufacturing, like Huajian shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that is, is feasible? And the reason I ask that question is because in China, the reason why you've been able to have such manufacturing success is not because just the low-wage labor. In that case, you know, every African country could win the game. But it's because you've got an infrastructure, you've got supply chains, you've got, you know, all of that kind of, you know, good ports, good roads. You, you know, if you build a shoe, you need leather suppliers and whatnot. Everything is linked up and it goes out very, very quickly. Can Africa fill that void or at least parts of Africa, like in Ethiopia, actually fill the void for, uh, for Chinese manufacturing? I think it's a very good question. Uh, we often discuss, uh, you know, whether or not after China finished its role as a, a, a low, low, low cost producer, all the millions of jobs can be transferred, shift away from China and to somewhere. Where is this place going to be? You know, is that going to be Vietnam? Is it going to be India? Is that going to be Africa? By Africa, we're talking about these regional hubs like Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, South Africa, and Nigeria, maybe Ghana. So, of course, Chinese has already kind of seen there is opportunities in Africa, and they're willing to do business with Africa. So, I, I, uh, you, uh, we were talking about a political issue as if you know it's the most important for Africa, but uh, you know we. Another argument would be, you know, Africa needs to first educate its people. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you know, you first need to have enough money, enough uh, resources. You can keep the talents so that your your people can understand their rights and they're willing to push that from the grassroots level other than, uh, you know, the government, uh, you know, doing that on one side. But at the other side, they're taking all the aid money and doing their own favor. But anyway, uh, shifting it back to the topic, I certainly see that the Chinese uh, manufacturing cost is is increasing, and the, uh, because all these issues are associated with the, the currency exchange rates, um, the uh, uh, the global weak market, uh, 
and, uh, and, and so on, there's really not much profit to make, uh, for example, shoes in China anymore. Uh, for example, Wenzhou, which is the largest uh, place uh, hosting the, the shoe manufacturers in China, also you know, produce a lot of merchants all over the world, Chinese traders all over the world. The, I read the recent news that the registered shoe manufacturers has shrinked from uh, 1,300 1, or something to maybe 50% or even less. There's already seen that you know there, there's less profit in, in, in if you do business in China. The labor cost is higher and higher, and also the inflation and also the exchange rate. Yeah. So if you can find an African country, and that country uh, you can find a good resource of uh, 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 you know the workers and the country's government is cooperative, the Chinese government is supportive, and uh, the infrastructure is developing. Well, there we go. Uh, why the, not? This infrastructure question, I think, is going to be the most important one. And that, ironically, might actually involve the Chinese themselves who build out the infrastructure for trade. When we talk about infrastructure, we're talking about you know roads to get the suppliers to the you know supplier products to the manufacturer from the finished product then has to get to the ports. The ports then have to be able to be modernized enough to take the big ships to take it to the U.S. One other thought here, Anne, is we've been hearing a lot out of Washington lately about trade, not aid in Africa. Now, that's a, a cliche that's been going on in Washington for, for 10 years now. But interestingly enough, as the Americans lower their trade tariffs on African imports to the United States, could the Chinese take advantage of that because they can then use that as a backdoor into the U.S. market where they're not subject to the same tariffs they might be subject to if they're coming from China? I'm sorry to interrupt you, Eric. That's already happening in Swaziland. It's, um, the, the, it's a big story that, that Chinese textile companies are apparently using Swaziland's favored trading, you know, developmentalist trading partner status with the U.S. as a kind of a backdoor into the U.S. market. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What do we think? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's good for Africans. It's good for Americans. It's good for Chinese. Who, who would be opposed to that? Did we lose Anne? We might have lost Anne. You know, Jing Hao, any, any thoughts on that yes. in terms of what uh, is there? Is that bad news for people that, that Chinese are going to take advantage of, of American trade uh, programs in Africa in order to use it as a backdoor into their trading systems? I personally think Chinese business people are today the most kind of pra pragmatic business people. Uh, you know, they they probably uh, I would say their the bottom line is is not even existent. So any opportunities for them, they will jump in. So I don't see why they uh, they won't do that first of all. And second, why uh, whether or not it's good uh, or or bad to the economy. I I think as long as the the government actually enforce a tight stra uh, tight strategy to to maintain some of these money through tax and also make sure that the goods are not exported through a legal way that you know they, they actually can keep it and also maybe for, force uh, China to give away some job opportunities. I don't see why it's not a good thing. I mean, yeah. to America, it's, it's always... Uh, you know, good if uh, people obtain the uh, you know the relatively low cost uh, products. Uh, I think it's generally benefit every people day, day life. Well, this is something that the Chinese have done very effectively with uh, with Vietnam, where they took advantage when some tariffs on, for example, furniture products came up in the early two thousands. Chinese manufacturing shifted to Vietnam to take advantage of Vietnam's low tariff on furniture, and it was just really remarkable how quickly Chinese manufacturers adapted to this new trading environment. So that's one area that I would. Uh, recommend to keep an eye on to see that as the cost of business goes up, as the trade the tariffs in Africa to the United States go down, that Chinese manufacturers take advantage of that.
Let's move on now to our final topic. Um, this is a, an article that we saw in, uh, in, in Creamer's Engineering News, and it features none other than, uh, than, than our dear Jing Hao here, who was interviewed for this article. Um, and it talks really about the, the understanding of Chinese and African business cultures. And so we're not going to focus on any one particular element, but this idea that, that in, in, you know, and this is what m- my personal opinion, is that Chinese and, and African business cultures in many ways are far more adaptable to one another than Western and African business cultures. Um, you know, Jinghao, give us a little bit of, uh, of your perspective on, on this topic and, and what your, your thoughts are in terms of how these two, what seem to be on the outside, extremely divergent, extremely, you know, different cultures from one another actually get together. And where are the points of friction and where are the points of opportunity? Okay, uh, again, I can uh, briefly introduce it as I'm still in the exploration of this thing. I, I won't say I'm expert on that. So if I'm wrong, uh, we, please correct we won't, me. We won't quote you, you know, and hold you to be an expert. <laughs> Thank you very much. So first of all, I think, uh, uh, you know, this Chinese business people dealing with Afri- African business people is still in its early stage. And we all know that um, most Africans adopt the, the business uh, practices from uh, the we so-called West, uh, more specifically the European countries, West Europeans and Americans. So they, they're as well. When, as first, they kind of respect that practices and they try to learn as much possible from that. They see another way of doing business from Chinese who are, I would say, if you if you draw a comic, they, they're probably like the most practical faces and they, they, they're doing things in a very practical way, sometimes uh, maybe not ethical in a Western perspective. So uh, in order to engage both sides, I think Africans uh, need to not only learn the Western uh, business uh, concepts and ideas, they also need to learn uh, the Chinese side. And uh, I'm in South Africa, which is the so-called most developed African countries, and there is very, very minimal uh, educational programs that teaches people about uh, today's China, Chinese history, business culture, and so on. So we we took some, sometimes MBA students to China, they were always Amazed by the the, the level of uh, government engagement and the social development. So, in terms of um, you know how these Africans can actually push uh, that knowledge forward to make it uh, happen, uh, dealing with Chinese people effectively, because we know that Chinese people will will be in Africa, and how to take advantage of them will will mean that, and how the nation can can develop in in one uh, in one aspect. So, uh, I would say uh, first of all, knowing the Chinese. Chinese culture. Uh, when you, uh, you know, want to do business with Chinese, you always want to know that the business relationship is very important to them. So you want to get introduced to them uh, by a middle person who knows both sides, and they uh, want to always, you know, be, uh, you know, perceived with respect. So you want to present as much information as possible with no delay. Uh, I know a lot of Africans probably would uh, be a little delay, uh, you know, even in South Africa. So People sense of little, time is very, very different between back, the two. Ex- exactly. I think Chinese, uh, the successful story of China is that everyone has extreme high work ethics and they're willing to sacrifice their free time for doing business. So they actually respond to your email quite quickly. So how do you treat that? You know, uh, how do you kind of balance your, your, your African lifestyle while suiting the Chinese expectation uh, will be will be a very important thing. Uh, I, I encounter clients who, uh, you know, take time to take time, quote unquote, to, to respond, but that will create a doubt 
doubtfulness among the Chinese. Is is that person sincere enough? Also, I would say Chinese people uh, always interpret uh, the body language and the words extremely into detail. Uh, in, in China, when you do business, it's a lot of time it's done by by show uh, interpreting body language. Sometimes they say maybe, maybe means maybe not. Or you know, when you go to business dinner, uh, you know the seat arrangement always shows how much you respect that person and how much wine you drink. Also, yeah, so shows there's a lot that, of, uh, of subtle codes you, that that are sort of behavioral and cultural codes. Cobus, you know, let me, uh, exactly. let me just ask you one quick question, Cobus, here that, you know, I've always kind of felt that, you know, at, at the end of the day, China is, it, the Chinese and Africans have more in common than I think than they have apart, as I mentioned, this idea that, you know, to me, and this is something that Chinese react to very unusual, you know, awkwardly when I mention it, but at the end of the day, China is a very tribal country. Uh, you know, tribal in the sense of clans, in the sense of dialects, in the sense of people do business with people who they know, as he talk, as Jinghao mentioned about intermediaries being very, very important. You know, it's not a contractual-based culture like we have in the West. Uh, and in so many ways, that is absolutely compatible with, with, with African culture. So in terms of these cultural points that Jinghao was saying, um, do you agree with this sense that there is some compatibility? Or is, is this a, 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 am I making too much of this? No, I agree with you. Um, and I, I, I'd probably take it even, you know, kind of, I mean, maybe, you know, in terms of, of um, tribal in, in an ethnic sense, you know, kind of, you know, obviously, the, the, you know, that kind of situation is different in each African country. And, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, many African countries don't have the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of makeup that China has, you know, kind of with a very big central ethnic group, and then, you know, smaller, you know, smaller kind of minority groups. But I think it, it kind of grows into, uh, you know, the kind of communities that get created as well. And particularly, in the case of both African Africa and in China, um, it's the, the the role of the party, the role of the Communist Party. Um, you know, I think I think that's a kind of unexamined, you know, kind of way. You know, kind of, it, it acts similar to an ethnic, to ethnic kind of identity. Um, it has incredibly kind of strong, uh, you know, structures like you know networking structures. Um, it it it's in a way kind of a way to test. Purity and and commitment, you know, kind of. Um, so if people came up with you through the party ranks, then they're to be trusted, you know, kind of, and they would be the people that you turn to. And that's a logic that is happening, you know, kind of. I think in Africa and in China, and it's 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 a kind of a shared language, a kind of the shared language of state communism. I think you know, kind of that, you know, where I think Africa and China are the what are two of the only places in the world where the concept that, you know, the, that, you know, the, a spokesperson of the Politburo kind of speaking, kind of granting an interview to a state newspaper is not a strange concept, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, yeah, you know, kind of, it seems to me that that's, it's unexamined, but I think that's a very powerful kind of overlap. I think they kind of speak each other's language in that sense already. Now, I wanted yeah. to read a quote. Of, I'll get to you really quickly. And I just wanted to read a quote from, from the article that, uh, that quoted uh, Jing Hao. Uh, Jing Hao highlights, and this is a quote, in order to improve mutual understanding, Chinese companies need to engage effectively with local communities through donations and implementing corporate social responsibility programs, information and communica communications technology. Uh, company Huawei is an example of a Chinese company effectively engaging with communities and governments across the continent. Probably not in Algeria, as we talked about last week, but um, but it's interesting because I, I spoke with a, a Paris-based China-Africa expert uh, yesterday, and he talked about how CNPC in Chad 
had is, you know, just took, you know, is really expanding its CSR programs and whatnot. And this comes, as, you know, as a contradiction to probably a lot of our listeners who associate Chinese business, particularly in places like Zambia. And here I go, falling to my own victims. Howard French is going to be very, very happy that I'm <laughs> using a, uh, a Zambian example. But, you know, the, the mines, uh, you know, the labor issues that they've had in Zambia, the labor issues that they've been in, in, in DRC, in the eastern DRC, in the mines there, and, and really across the continent. Um, you know, this idea that corporate social responsibility is essential for Chinese companies. Um, Jinghao, and Anne, we'll get to you very quickly, but Jinghao, talk to me about the role and the importance of, of CSR. And is this just, you know, what we call in the United States called greenwashing, where you kind of, you know, you, you, you talk a good line on these things. But at the end of the day, you know, you're going to get the stuff out of the ground as cheaply as possible. Okay. First of all, I, uh, in regard uh, with regard to the example you brought about the Zambia, I think that's a example of Chinese company that is overassessed. Uh, there are so many Chinese companies. You know, every C- C- SOE has different strategy in different countries to match their own, uh, you know, company interest, and they will employ uh, employ different programs. Yeah, to, but uh, but the general to, to reputation of uh, the general reputation of Chinese companies is that labor and health and 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 safety standards are not up to international standards. That's the reputation. I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily a fair reputation, but it certainly is the reputation. Uh, in the past uh, 10 years, uh, I think through the uh, Go Global strategy promoted by the government for SOEs, state-owned companies to go out, uh, the, there's still very short time uh, for Chinese companies to learn how to do business globally. So I wouldn't uh, reject the, the crit- criticism that Chinese companies were uh, doing business in these aspects uh, very, very poorly. Um, but I would highlight that Chinese business, because they want to survive in Africa, um, because not just because they want to dig the, dig a hole and uh, get all the resource away. You know, we know that China is looking for a market to expand its business, to expand its uh, capacity. So, and, and it's it's certainly good if they uh, more more rooting Africa because they are not just digging a hole and that go away. They're manufacturing things, they're providing jobs, they're providing you know taxes, they're transferring skills. So, if that, that's the case, you know, China certainly don't want to lose that. Uh, uh, privilege at this time because other players hasn't got such a status as Chinese company currently got. So they want to see ways to improve. But again, in the past 10 years, they're learning. They're learning, but you know, the, at first they brought a lot of Chinese strategies such as you know treating labor in this way or disregarding environment or uh, you know uh, sometimes even uh, you know doing something facilitating corruption but they did that in China now they realize it's the, it's important for them to do that in order to survive in Africa if they realize they will employ a program as we record Chinese are very pragmatic they want to survive and they won't do it I'm not saying they want to do it in a sincere way as many companies say oh I'm sincerely uh, interested in giving uh, locals a uh, job back or uh, giving them uh, you know the, the community thriving uh, Chinese do it simply because of business purpose yeah. Huawei well, that, does and that's it for purpose. no different than, in, than a western company either I don't want to pretend exactly that. Yeah. I, I will say Chinese companies are companies multinationals doesn't matter. It's a Chinese company, American company. Once it's multinational, when it's mature, they'll do that the business strategy in, in a very similar way. So we don't say, oh, that's Chinese way, that's American way. When Chinese business got more and more mature, they want to be perceived as a multinational instead of, of uh, a Chinese company. I actually encountered some Chinese companies in 
in Ghana who said, oh, we're trying to be a multinational company just like the bank below us, which yeah. is international bank. So that, I agree with you. And what are your thoughts on this? I want to go back to one of uh, Jing Hao's first points, which is that there really needs to be more education uh, for Africans about Chinese culture. I know when I was taking a class at a university in Senegal, I just took a Mandarin class, and it was kind of shocking how little uh, Af uh, Chinese history the students there had, had had, and they said that most of it was because curriculums were really geared toward uh, you know, Europe and the U.S. and colonial history rather than uh, Chinese and Asian history. Um, and so I thought that was um, one really important point. The other thing was I saw a movie screening this week of When China Met Africa uh, by the Francis Brothers, and you kind of saw a lot of the kind of differences and similarities in African and Chinese businesses in that film. Um, so, you know, in in what you were saying, Eric, about the similarities, um, there was an African businessman who said, you know, when the U.S., when American companies come here to do business, they show us all these PowerPoints with cash flows and all these different things. He said, you know, when the Chinese come, they just ask, what are the incentives? And we kind of, he said they kind of spoke the same language. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, there were obvious tensions about uh, breaks for church on Sunday or Chinese saying that the Africans weren't as disciplined. So... I mean, I think it was really yeah. easy to see these effects. Well, we're trying to get Nick Francis to come on the show, uh, and hopefully he can join us to talk about that. But, I, I, you know, I think it's very interesting to point out that, you know, both both Chinese and Africans have, share at least one thing in common, which is, you know, Americans, when they come in, in the Anglo-Saxon business model is very results-oriented. So let's get from A to B as fast as possible, and then we can all make money and go home. Whereas, you know, if anybody's done business in Africa, you know this also well, it's not results-oriented. It's process-oriented. And that's exactly the same way it is in China, where you have to make sure you go to dinners. You have to build those relationships. It takes time. It's not necessarily efficient. And I think, you know, so when I hear criticisms of the Chinese in Africa, you know, talking about how they're not compatible and how they're foreigners, I, I often think that the Western system that was imposed on the Africans is far more foreign to, to a lot of people, this results-oriented type of way of doing business and whatnot. And so, but just as Jing Hao said that the Chinese are having to learn very, you know, about the Africans, I think, Anne, you bring up a good point that Africans have to, you know, figure out a way to learn about the Chinese as well. Um, one of the big blocks that I think happens in a lot of of African cases, and I saw this from my experience in Cameroon as well as in the DRC, was this perception that if you're not black African, you're white. And in part because so much of the foreign you know, point of view for many Africans has been towards the colonial powers and not towards Asia or towards Brazil or towards you know, other countries. So this idea of separating white from foreign is going to be a very important key step. Uh, in, in Lingala, it was the uh, Mundele. And for them, Mundele was everybody who's not you know, uh, black African. So I think that's an interesting concept as well that has to be overcome. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, you know, kind of one thing I'd, I'd just like to add is that, um, you know, I think in, in terms of small business, um, in, you know, we, we've spoken a lot about b before about, you know, kind of Chinese traders in Africa. Um, I recently spoke to a Japanese anthropologist who works in um, in Botswana and in very, very rural Botswana. And, um, and, you know, kind of when she goes there, there's a little Chinese shop. And so she tried to Kind of communicate with the, the the wife of the shopkeeper, and it turns out that not only does the wife not speak English, 
she doesn't write Chinese. So, you know, obviously the Japanese was trying to, Japanese um, researcher was trying to communicate with her in, in, in written Chinese symbols. And she also said, sorry, no, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't actually write. Um, you know, so, um, but then when she, the anthropologist spoke to her husband, he said that, you know, in a lot of ways, their lives are very similar to what their lives were like in, in very rural China, in the sense that they have to go and carry water, they have to go and get water in the morning. Occasionally, they, 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 you know, they can't count on electricity, they sometimes have to live on, you know, they have to cook on fire. Um, and in this a similar kind of way, his wife holds all of their clients, plus all of their clients' credit histories in her mind. You know, to keep keep in keep in mind that this is a woman who doesn't speak any local language. She has no way to communicate with her clients, but she has like like about uh, between two hundred and three hundred kind of regular clients, all who all have you know kind of credit on her shop, and some of them live very far away, and she kind of keeps all of their kind of credit histories just basically in her mind. She, you know, she has a mental ledger, um, and I think in that sense, you know, kind of that kind of like making do kind of character you know kind of culture i think is is the real kind of meeting place excellent well that'll uh listen for more on this topic uh you go check out engineering news and there's an article called chinese african investors to try should strive to understand host countries business culture uh lu jinghao was featured in that article also if you want to follow lu jinghao you can follow him on his excellent blog at china africa relations in my eyes perspectives from a Chinese, if you uh, look, look for China-Africa-Jinghao.blogspot.com, that's a long address, uh, you'll be able to <laughs> <Sorry>. find him. <laughs> then uh, that's it. But, and, and Jinghao, are you also on Twitter by any chance or not? I tweet uh, minimally. I'm, I should have, but <laughs> okay. sorry. Well, but hopefully, uh, hopefully you will, you'll get some time to tweet. Uh, Kobus, if people want to follow you on, uh, on Twitter, where can, where can they find you? Yeah, they can they can find my very annoying Twitter handle, which is at Stadenesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. Excellent. And uh, and if they if people want to follow what you're doing on Twitter, where's the best way? I'm Anne Sher zero seven. So it's A N N E S H E R zero seven. And you can also find Anne Kobus and myself. who are also participating on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. We're posting up uh, videos and the podcast as well, and different articles throughout the week. We're really trying to get people to engage in a conversation. One of the interesting things about the Facebook page is that we have a growing number of both Africans and Chinese who are from around the world who are there. So it really, is a great opportunity to exchange ideas. We hope that you can post up there. We'd also like to see if you can post up on our iTunes page uh, any recommendations, any, uh, you know, rate us, and that helps us kind of move up in the iTunes ecosystem in terms of getting more visibility for the podcast. So go ahead, give us a rating. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a good rating. We'd like it if it was a good rating, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, and then, uh, and of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at eolander, E-O-L-A-N. D-E-R. So that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and we'll be back again next week with another review and preview of the week's events in China and in Africa. Thanks for listening.